Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you rely on the Federal Health Insurance Exchange to get your insurance? Coming up, we'll discuss what could happen to Obamacare under a new administration. But first, while Americans have been glued to the news post-election day and speculation to what the next commander-in-chief has in store, an important conference has been underway in Marrakesh, Morocco. Today, where we live, we hear from a reporter at the Global Climate Change Conference known as COP22. Thousands of participants from around the world are meeting to decide how the nations that signed the Paris Climate Agreement should act to prevent further global warming. Could Donald Trump's presidency impact U.S. commitment to the global agreement? If so, how will that change momentum around climate change action globally in this country and here in Connecticut? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining us by phone now from Marrakesh is Michael Igo. He's a senior correspondent for DEVIX, a media platform for aid workers and global development professionals. He's also a Connecticut native. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks so much for having me. So update us. We know that last year's climate change conference in Paris was seen as a huge victory uh, for those of us um, who believe, uh, those people in the country who believe that climate change is a real issue. Now, what happened and why was that so important, that agreement last year? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this was an agreement that was decades in the work. It really was a a big achievement. Um, Basically, what it did was it brought hundreds of countries together, or a hundred and many countries together, uh, to agree what they're going to do on climate change. Um, it essentially set up a procedural framework that countries are signing on to over the next um, decades, and what they'll do is come back every five years and report on what they've achieved at home. Um, you know, I think the most important thing about the Paris Agreement was that it really focuses on action in countries, so national decisions. What are you going to do in your own country uh, to fulfill these goals that have been set out, limiting uh, global warming to less than 2 degrees Celsius, hopefully even 1.5, that's the the more ambitious goal, and then supporting developing countries as they take the necessary steps to protect themselves against the impacts of climate change that they're already feeling. Um, So it's, it's an agreement about what we're going to do, and how we're going to tell each other about it. So interesting timing for this conference uh, around the time of of the U.S. presidential race. You know, what were some of the things that were being said uh, leading up uh, to Election Day? And now that we know who the next commander-in-chief will be here in this country, how are nations responding? Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of uh, breath-holding in the days leading up to the, the U.S. election. I mean, as you can imagine, this is a a somewhat self-selective group, right? This is a climate change conference, so these are people who believe strongly that that climate change is an issue that that needs to be dealt with and dealt with aggressively. Um, So the first couple of days, I think you saw a lot of celebration uh, of the Paris Agreement, of the the progress that was made last year. Um, But, you know, a lot of eyes on the United States. I was at an NGO uh, election watch party on the night of the election, and 
uh, it became increasingly uh, nervous and tense as the night wore on. We're quite, you know, we're five hours later here, so it was not until the next morning that people saw the, the results of the election. Um, and at that point, this sort of cloud of uncertainty really descended on, on Marrakesh. Um, and, you know, people are wondering, is this going to uh, prompt other countries to be less ambitious, to be hesitant in terms of what they're willing to commit? Are they all waiting to see what the Trump administration will do? I think for the most part, people here have kept a pretty, pos have put a pretty positive face on this outcome. Country <laughs> after country, you've seen a recommitment to the work um, of the Paris Agreement, to the commitments stated there. Um, and really what they're saying is that, you know, this is a, a global movement towards a low-carbon future that's already underway, and the ability of one person or even one country's administration to um, to turn that momentum around is, is limited. Mm. But you also wrote that um, the election of Donald Trump was considered among many to be, quote, a doomsday scenario uh, for climate change negotiators. We heard during his campaign his opposition to the Paris Agreement. Um, here he was speaking um, in North Dakota. We're going to cancel the Paris Climate Agreement and stop. Unbelievable and stop all payments of the United States tax dollars to UN global warming programs. So, Michael, you mentioned that the nations are, are staying committed, but those words are, you know, pretty serious, especially when, when we have a, a president-elect who um, has admitted he doesn't believe in, in climate change. It is very serious, and, and, you know, obviously for the members of the U.S. delegation who are here, um, this is something of a doomsday scenario. They have no idea whether you know, these jobs will exist next year or for the next four years. These, you know, the, the positions of representing the United States to the international community. So, um, you know, that's, that's a real issue. And the other one that he mentioned is, is um, withdrawing any, any U.S. financial support. Finances are, are always a huge topic at these conferences. Developing countries are you know, consistently making the case that they need resources to confront the impacts of climate change, and they're asking developed countries for that support. The United States has been a big contributor. Um, the U.S. has pledged $3 billion to something called the Green Climate Fund over the next four years. It's one of the main vehicles for, for moving money and knowledge and um, capacity to the developing countries that are for the most part, experiencing the most intense impacts of climate change. Um, so, you know, this could have a, a real material impact, um, both on the developing countries' ability to implement the projects that they want to implement, but also on sort of the mutual sense of trust between, um, you know, states that have benefited the most from uh, industrialization and, and high carbon economies and those that that have not committed uh, carbon dioxide to the atmosphere in, in such high numbers. So there's, a, there's an issue of, of international engagement at stake here, too. And um, this has the, I think, potential to start to, to chip away at some of that trust that was built so decisively with the Paris Agreement last year.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Michael Igo uh, from Marrakesh, Morocco. He's there covering COP22, a global climate conference. He's senior correspondent for DevEx. We're talking about, you know, how the Paris Agreement and putting uh, words into action will be impacted um, when uh, Donald Trump becomes president in January. And, you know, you were mentioning, you know, some of the other countries um, and, you know, what kind of influence they have. You know, if Donald Trump were uh, to try to pull out of this agreement. I mean, it's not as easy as saying that, correct? So what would be the process? Yeah, this is something that people are eagerly trying to understand right now. So uh, all the reports are that he's looking for the fastest way to to get out of this. Um, First of all, I should say there are a lot of people hoping they can change his mind, that, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here to engage with um, an administration that's facing... uh, that's, that's looking at things from a different perspective from the White House than they might have from the campaign trail. Um, so whether there's the, the opportunity to um, present a pragmatic case for following through on these things uh, is still, you know, something that, that people are hoping is on the table. But on what Trump could actually do, there, there are a few different options, um, and, and they're a little bit difficult to parse. Actually, Withdrawing the United States from the Paris Agreement through the formal process that's sort of set up in that agreement would take four years. It's a, um, uh, you have to wait three years after the agreement goes into effect, and then uh, it takes an additional year after you've submitted your, your desire to pull out. There's some speculation, though, that the Trump administration would withdraw the United States entirely from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is sort of the overarching body that you know, puts these cops together and, and uh, oversaw the, the Paris Agreement. If he did that, that could only take one year. But he could also just not commit funding. Um, and I think, you know, this, this question of whether he, he might just, uh, through neglect, not really hold up U.S. commitments is, is one of the more troubling. I want to take a, a phone call. Uh, Rob's uh, holding from Bethlehem. Rob, you're on, sh- you're sh- on the show. What's your question or comment? Uh, Yes. My simple comment is I think things are going to happen now at the local and state level, which is where all action has happened. Um, Washington's clearly checked out on the issue. They won't lead. But that doesn't mean America can't lead. I think we will just have to lead at the local level and the state level and at the individual level, whether it be through supporting renewable energy, more efficient homes, more resilient buildings. And, and I think when we look at the business case for that, it's there, and you can't stop market forces. So um, it's unfortunate Washington won't lead, but that doesn't mean we can't lead. Well, thank you, Rob, for your comment. Uh, Michael, I go, um, what's, your, what's your take on that, this per- per- perspective from the local level that, you know, while we watch and see from an international perspective what's being done and, and uh, what our political leaders will be doing, um, you know, there are citizens around this country who feel like, you know, uh, now is the time to take uh, local action and to keep this movement going forward. It's a critical point. I couldn't agree more, and it's been a consistent theme here at the, the COP. When you look at these conferences, I mean, I think, you know, from a distance, you might have the impression that these are just government officials meeting sort of in secret rooms, um, you know, hashing out the, the complex technical aspects of a treaty. In some cases, that is what it is. But in other cases, this is also a forum where business leaders, um, mayors, uh, innovators, scientists, you know, renewable energy uh, champions are coming together and, and showing what they're doing. Uh, exactly as our, your caller said, in the places where they live um, or 
in the markets that are available to them. Um, and I think that's, that's really been one of the key sources of kind of hope or, or consolation uh, in the wake of Donald Trump's election. And again, just reinforces the point that the President of the United States um, does not have single-handed control over, over the forces that work here to, to move the world towards a low-carbon economy. And as we talk about momentum, you know, meanwhile, while this conference is going on, it's been reported that um, 2016 is projected to be the warmest year on record, according to the U.S. Meteorological Organization. Um, so, um, you know, what's the momentum there in terms of why action needs to happen now? Yeah, the the briefings have been getting increasingly dramatic. I was at one with the World Meteorological Organization, and um, they pointed out that 30% of the, the planet experienced drought last year. I mean, I think one of the things that you're exposed to at these conferences are the representatives from developing countries who are seeing climate change not as something that might happen in the future and needs to be sort of planned planned for in advance, but something that they're confronting on a, a daily basis. Um, and so there's an urgency here um, that they represent that I think is really important for people to understand. You know, they're talking about um, desertification, sea level rise that's making places where they live unlivable. Um, and that's, again, and it, you know, I, I hate to boil it down to money all the time, but this is why the financial piece is so critical. These countries are looking for early action, so not waiting until, you know, the sort of five-year period when everybody reports back. They're looking for immediate assistance now, um, hopefully public finance, not just loans, um, to help them implement the projects that they want to implement to be more resilient, to be able to withstand these changes that they're facing today. Michael Igo is a senior correspondent for DevEx, a media platform for aid workers and global development professionals. He's been speaking to us from Marrakesh, Morocco. That's the site of the Global Climate Change Conference known as COP22. Michael, thanks for joining us. Hope we can check in with you in a, in a few months to see where we, where we go from here. I hope so, too. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you. When we come back, we'll turn our attention to health care, specifically what happens to Obama's Affordable Care Act? Do you have questions about your insurance plan under the ACA? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. It's already November. That means it's open enrollment for consumers who take advantage of the Federal Affordable Care Act and buy plans through their state health insurance exchanges. Now, coming up, we'll hear from James Wadley, CEO of Connecticut's exchange, Access Health CT. But first, what is the future of Obamacare under a new president? Donald Trump has said he'll repeal and replace ACA, but how quickly will that happen? To help answer those questions, I'm joined in studio by WNPR's business reporter, Harriet Jones, who covers many topics, including insurance. Good to see you again. Good morning. Also joining us by phone is Rosemarie Day, whose company, Day Health Strategies, specializes in helping implement national health care reform. Rosemarie, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks. Good morning. So, uh, just fill us in. What do we know so far about how President-elect Trump is going to approach health care in his administration? Rosemary. Thank you. Um, well, I think we have certainly heard several mixed messages, but I think key to focus on is the fact that every time he has talked about repealing the ACA, he always says replace. 
So he talks about repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, the, the, the real question then is what does he replace it with? And then kind of related to that is what kind of time frame does this all happen on? But uh, he certainly campaigned on um, changing Obamacare. There's no doubt about it. So we are looking for any kind of signals we can get as to what that's going to mean. So um, talking about replacing parts of Obamacare, we heard in that 60 Minutes interview earlier this week that, you know, he is maintaining that um, still covering pre-existing health conditions, um, allowing um, youth up until 26 to still get coverage. So parts of the the the, the Obamacare uh, that probably are pretty costly that he still wants to maintain. Is that a good sign for Americans who are insured this way now? Well, so that's certainly... Yes, for those who are insured, that would be a very good sign. But I think uh, key to look at, of course, is the other side of the coin, which is the insurers who need to actually provide that coverage. And, you know, what does that mean for them? And I think that's where you really have to look at the math, because to cover pre-existing conditions, um, you know, means you've got to uh, cover a lot of folks who are um, potentially more sick than the average uh, folks of the population. And uh, that means that they can cost more for an insurance company, therefore raising um, the cost of the insurance itself unless you get keep um, healthy people in the pool, the risk pool. So um, I'm sure your business reporter can, can speak to this in, in, uh, in more detail, but certainly that's of concern. And that's part of how the whole math of the Affordable Care Act worked was to make sure that the uh, was to try and make sure that the health uh, pool would be um, would be diversified and that th- the math would work. So you could say that we'll cover pre-existing conditions, but not make it so exorbitantly high that in effect people can't afford it. Mm. So Harriet Jones, our business reporter, um, you know, I've, I'd heard that about only 40 percent of those eligible are even enrolled um, in in their health exchanges and not as many of the healthy people that, um, you know, the Democrats wanted to see to help with the cost. So what does it look like in 2016? We know Aetna is based here. And what is Mark Bertolini saying, from the CEO of Aetna? Yeah, so I mean, what we're talking about here is the, is the individual mandate that, that that's the you know the, the controversial part of the Affordable Care Act, which is something that Donald Trump had said actually early in the primaries. He'd said he was for the individual mandate, mm-hmm. and then did a very quick about face and said, no, 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 I, I'm against the individual mandate. But it, you know, as Rosemary points out, it's very difficult to see how you keep those nice popular things. Of course, everybody wants to be able to keep their kids on the policy, or mm-hmm. you know, not have uh, have what they call guaranteed issue, be able to get uh, coverage for pre-existing conditions. Those are very popular things. The individual mandate is the the yin and the yang of that. That's you know how you actually pay for that. That is broadening out the risk pool, making sure that everybody is involved in health insurance, so that the young and healthy people, you know, pay in their premiums don't use as much uh, health health insurance and they pay for the older, sicker people. Um, it's hard to see how you construct a marketplace that has that doesn't have an individual mandate but yet keeps those popular parts of the Affordable Care Act. And that's going to be the, the balancing act for President Trump going forward, uh, you know, because he has talked about not only repealing but replacing, but it's been very unclear what he will replace it with. And now uh, Mark Bertolini was making comments to the New York Times recently. What did he say? Yes. He, well, <laughs> interestingly enough, he said he was caught completely flat-footed by the election result. He was very frank about that, that they had been, of course, every big company runs scenarios around elections, especially something that's as involved with the federal government as a health insurer. They run scenarios for, you know, how do we respond to this result and that result? And he said, in fact... He had no idea that this result would would come up, that the Republicans would actually sweep. Okay, let's hear that. 
if you were to put the look at our game board of all the possible outcomes that could have happened in the election, this one wasn't even on the sheet. And every time somebody would bring up and say, well, what if the Republicans sweep? I think, get out of the room. It's not even. So we started with a, a fresh piece of paper yesterday. We had no idea how to approach it. Mm. Now, uh, Rosemarie Day, again, president of Day Health Strategies. We're hearing from uh, insurance uh, company CEOs that weren't expecting this. Um, with your clients, I mean, what, is, what are some of the messages you're giving to them about, um, you know, what Obamacare will look like in 2017, 2018? Um, uh, let me address that in one second. I do want to just make one side note that keeping um, uh, young adults on their parents' health plan up to age 26 is actually something that's probably more affordable um, within you know, the insurance community than the other provision, which is uh, way more affordable than, than guaranteed issues. So um, I just want to point that out, that because you're typically picking up the young healthies, that was, um, that's one piece that might, might uh, be easier to sustain. So. I just want to set that aside. Um, <clears throat> in terms of uh, what we're seeing with clients, they, well, obviously the scenario planning is uh, heavily beginning, um, and now what they're looking at are the scenarios of what, what uh, mode of replacement we'd be talking about and what time frame would be beyond. Mm. Now, what about when we look at individual states with their health exchanges? I know you have a lot of work that you did in Massachusetts. Um, what about Connecticut, California? You know, where do they go from here? Because there's so much speculation. Well, if you're looking at the state um, health insurance exchanges, of which there are about 12 left, um, most of the, so everybody else who is getting um, insurance through exchanges is actually doing that um, largely through the federal marketplace or its platform. Um, but Connecticut does have um, a very robust um, exchange on its own, state-based exchange. And there are about 100,000 folks who are enrolled. Um, we are in currently in open enrollment. I'm sure Jim will speak to that right now. So actively um, recruiting uh, new members and um, looking to retain those who already had their coverage. Uh, so those folks, um, you know, heading into 2017, the message has been that um, that nothing's going to change yet. Um, and I think what, you know, we saw interestingly was that the federal marketplace had one of its biggest enrollment days um, on November, um, right after the election. And that uh, that was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty uh, significant. I think that those who need insurance were, were hurrying to get it um, while they felt like they still could. I think the key here is we don't know exactly um, what the time frame is for repeal. Uh, you know, a lot of experts think that folks who are um, who are getting coverage now and who would get it in this open enrollment period would retain it through 2017. That it's really difficult to undo all of Obamacare. You know, on day one, in fact, pretty close to impossible. Um, so, you know, folks folks would most likely be covered through 2017. Beyond that, it's it's uh, tough to say. Harriet. Yeah, Rosemary is correct that in I think that actually unwinding the ACA is going to prove harder than you know putting out slogans about it. Certainly, a direct repeal is probably not possible because that can be filibustered by the Democrats in the Senate. What they're going to have to do is you know gradually defund parts of it, probably through budget adjustments, um, and that's going to take a little longer. And I think the timing is going to be crucial to look at because a lot of the insurers are locked in; they're contractually locked in for seventeen. Um, on the exchanges. So they have to provide, you know, they have people signing up for those plans. They're going to have to provide those plans. But if they don't see this system being supported and if they don't see, um, you know, a coherent replacement being 
articulated by the Republicans. What happens in 18? You know, do the, do the insurers just pull back and say, we're not taking part in this? So that's, I think, going to be, you know, the timing of getting a replacement in place so that you don't see millions and millions of people falling out of insurance within the next year or so, I think is going to be crucial for the Republicans. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about Obamacare and a, and a new uh, administration come January. Uh, WNPR's business reporter Harriet Jones is in studio. Also on the phone, Rosemary Day, president of Day Health Strategies. I want to take a couple of calls. Alan's calling from Hartford. Alan, what's your comment or question? Uh, my comment is I have a pre-existing condition. Were it not for a mandate in Obamacare, I probably not would not be able to get any kind of health care yet, affordable health care for that matter. Um, like so many other people with pre-existing conditions, we're almost panicked at this point thinking, you know, after this year, if they decide to exclude from that, what kind of option are we going to have, you know? And I can't help but think that the government is going to give us coverage and then all of a sudden just say with the insurance companies, well, guess what? You can't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, I think it's just kind of hard to make it available and to give it to people and then have them just take it away from you. And in many cases, a lot of people I know, the insurance is providing um, life-saving medical coverage for them. And Alan, before Obamacare, what was, um, were you uninsured or what was, what did you, what did you use to, to get health care? I was uninsured mm. and um, through, you know, uh, a terrible twist of fate during Obamacare, I was diagnosed with a pre-existing condition. Now, granted, um, my doctor's visits and other things that I have to pay for, they're affordable enough that I could literally pay for them out of my own pocket. But I also take a prescription every month that costs upward of $3,000. And that's the real need for the insurance. Um, I mean, I just want to know if your guests had any thoughts on, you know, do they think that there would be a, a tremendous uproar in that, you know, not making this coverage available to people. All right, Alan. Well, thank you for your, your question. I'll, I'll ask uh, Rosemary Day to, to respond. Well, I certainly, um, I certainly feel your pain, and I would say that um, this is what makes it so tough. Um, there are some policy options that uh, when you look at the different replace, um, quote-unquote, um, measures that at least like one that had passed Congress, uh, another that Paul Ryan had put forward, they do um, talk about having high-risk pools, and that's something that states, uh, some states had in the past before the Affordable Care Act, and that was intended to um, cover some of the people who had um, pre-existing conditions. However, it did not cover all of them, and there often were, um, you know, uh, specific entry requirements, and um, and the affordability really varied depending on how much the state could subsidize that. So. So there, I think that's, you know, we're certainly seeing um, that on the table for replace, which uh, would indicate that not everybody would, would go cold turkey. There'd be some transition if those get set up. Um, but it's really t- hard to say who and how. And again, wouldn't uh, in, if, if we compare to what happened in the past, it would, wouldn't cover as many people. If you have a question, 860-275-7266. Again, um, if you're in Connecticut and you get your insurance through the exchange, uh, the CEO of Access Health CT, um, James Wadley, will be here in a, a few uh, minutes. So again, 860-275-7266. I want to take another call. Christina from Hamden is on the show. Christina, what's your question? Hi, um, my question is 
What would it take for Connecticut to set up its own uh, health care exchange, like independent from the ACA, like like WAMI care, basically what Massachusetts had before the ACA and what, what they will continue to have after uh, changes are made to the ACA um, if, if on a federal level we can't count on um, having you know the Affordable Care Act in place, is there any step that Connecticut can take to set up its own system that would be um, outside of the federal system that could ensure coverage? That's a good question. Uh, Rosemary, how could, how could we do that without uh, uh, taking in a, a lot of cost uh, for that kind of plan? Well, that's that's just it. I mean, you know, there's there's two parts to this. One is, does Connecticut have its own exchange to begin with? The, you know, the good news is yes. Um, so the mechanics are there in that you've you've got a state-based exchange, uh, full you know, fully. So so that that's there. The thing is, that exchange relies pretty heavily on uh, money that does come from the federal government to subsidize the coverage. So when we look at um, how many members Connecticut has, it looks like roughly, you know, 78, close to 80 percent of of those 100,000 folks are receiving some level of subsidy um, through these tax credits. They're getting that, and that does come from the federal government. So the state would have to look at how it could replace that funding um, in the absence of there being federal funding, and that is that's what's tough to do. I, I worked I worked on Romney Care, and um, our state had an unusual situation in Massachusetts where we had some federal funding on the table that was going to be taken away, and we were able to repurpose it uh, through a waiver to 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 basically afford our own subsidies for health care, but. But the truth was uh, some of that was federal money. Um, so we had started it at the state level, but we were able to use some federal Medicaid dollars to basically get our exchange going um, prior to the ACA. So the ACA is very much modeled on that and does rely heavily on those federal dollars. And then, Rosemarie, again, before I take another call, you mentioned Medicaid. What happens to the Medicaid expansion in so many states um, under a, a Trump administration? Well, um, <clears throat> that expansion um, looks like it's definitely um, in jeopardy. Uh, so there are millions of people who um, got coverage through that Medicaid expansion across many states, um, including many, many red states who did opt for um, for putting the expansion in place. And um, it does not look good um, for, for folks in, in that coverage bracket. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about um, Obamacare and what it will look like under a Trump administration. If you have a, a comment or a question, 860-275-7266. Um, uh, Rosemary, we heard from a, a primary care provider or, or someone in the healthcare field uh, just a week ago, and we asked him to, to give a call back to us. Uh, his name is uh, Stephen Polizonis. Um, Stephen, you're on the show. Hi. How so, are you this morning? We're doing well. So um, now that we're uh, you know a week out, um, you are a healthcare provider in New Britain, Connecticut. Tell us about um, your your uh, your patients and some of your concerns. Well, <clears throat> the concerns I have, again, being in New Britain, uh, and uh, New Britain being uh, we are in an area where there's a, a very high uh, Medicaid population, and uh, with that comes a lot of uh, healthcare issues. A lot of diabetes, a lot of glaucoma, a lot of other issues that that we deal with as an, in an eye care setting, uh, as a as a doctor of optometry in New Britain. Um, what happened with the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act? Uh, 
uh, more people were able to uh, access care. And we saw quite an influx of patients who either hadn't been seen in years uh, because uh, they had lost their job and were without insurance or they um, and now were able to access it or for whatever reason, um, we saw a large influx of patients, which was fine. A lot of these patients had a lot of issues and a lot of problems which we needed to deal with, not just vision-wise and new glasses, but also dealing with uh, uh, the diabetes or whatever we were dealing with with them or their untreated glaucoma or whatever. Uh, and so my concern is, obviously, with the possibility of rolling back some of this coverage, where are these people going to go to get treatment? Because they're obviously not going to be able to afford expensive medications, uh, never mind their eyeglasses for their needs to get around and do whatever they need to do every day. Um at least from my perspective, our perspective and our practice, we're concerned. Well, Stephen, thank you for um, that call. Uh, Rosemary, you had mentioned earlier that uh, before Obamacare, that was the high-risk pool, but for um, some of the patients that Stephen has seen in New Britain, where would they go? Well, some of them may qualify for the high-risk pool. Um, and, I, you know, I should say that it's there's a possibility that during a transition um, period, uh, folks who currently have coverage would be kind of grandfathered in and be allowed to keep coverage, and they might just close the door to new folks. So, um, so that would be, a, you know, kind of a a way to ameliorate what we see going forward under a repeal and replace. But it it doesn't really solve the underlying problem that. Um, that he's talking about. Uh, ultimately, folks would go back to being uninsured and have to scrape together the money that they can, um, you know, maybe go into debt, what have you, if they've got something that occurs that insurance would have covered. Um, so it's really tough. And when you asked earlier in the show, like, what kind of an outcry are we going to see? Uh, you know, we talked about people who are getting coverage. We talked about insurers. But it's really important to think about the provider perspective because, uh, you know, they you know, from from independent physicians all the way through hospitals, you know, they they want to provide care, but they cannot do it all, you know, for a significant chunk of folks uh, for free. Um, So, you know, they're they're really going to see some impact here um, where the coverage was helping um, their bottom line. And I think we are going to hear from the providers. Harriet? I think the tax question actually is is very interesting because that is some uh, an aspect of this where we've had a little bit of clarity from President-elect Trump. He said he wants to make uh, healthcare premiums tax deductible um, and also, you know, give people tax subsidies for HSAs for um, health savings accounts as a way to help them provide for their uh, medical coverage. But of course, you know, the kind of patients that Stephen's talking about in New Britain, that really doesn't help them because they're probably you know, not high tie taxpayers in, in any case. The, um, tax deductions tend to help people in the upper middle class afford their their health insurance. It doesn't help expand the pool of those who can get health insurance. So I think that tax structure question is going to be interesting going forward. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're getting a lot of calls. We're going to ask you to hold. We're going to bring in James Wadley, CEO of Access Health CT. Also on the phone with us is Rosemarie Day, uh, president of Day Health Strategies, a healthcare consultant. Uh, Rosemarie, if you can, we'd like you to stick around, too, to answer some questions we're having from our listeners. And we'll be right back.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, hop in and buckle up on the next Where We Live. We're taking a road trip, a journey through the history of American architecture and our longstanding relationship with the on-the-road adventure. It's the focus of a new exhibit at Connecticut's New Haven Museum. We're going to take a closer look. That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, we're talking about the Affordable Care Act and what could happen to the federal health care law under a Trump administration. WNPR's business reporter Harriet Jones is in studio with me on the phone. Rosemary Day, a health care consultant, president of Day Health Strategies. And joining us now is James Wadley, CEO of ha- Access Health CT. Thanks for coming on the show, James. Thanks for having me on. Good morning, everyone. So we know it's open enrollment. What's it looking like right now in Connecticut's health exchange? Uh, things are things are moving quite well right now. We are seeing our call call center volume it has has begun to uptick, which we would expect during uh, open enrollment. We're seeing foot traffic into our storefronts be higher than last year, and we are seeing our customers begin to enroll. We've already seen about. 10 to 12% of all of our customers re-enroll for next year. So we are excited to, to see what we're seeing already. Are you getting phone calls and from people that are concerned about what would happen if they sign up now and if it's taken away in a few months or a year from now? So we actually asked the staff that question uh, a, a couple of days ago, and the resounding answer was we've received one phone call into our call center. So so I'm happy with, with that, that the customers feel comfortable uh, with Access Health being able to continue to service them, and uh, we'll continue to move forward uh, like we do every year. I want to take some calls now. Uh, Michael's been holding from Meriden. Michael, you're on the show. Hi. Um, I have some questions about um, health insurance in general. Um, every time I think about it, it seems economically like it just doesn't make any sense. Things are too expensive for anybody to afford, even if they have health insurance. Health insurance itself is too expensive. Um, I was always wondering about the privatization of health insurance, if there's any thought about that having some merit. All right, Michael, thank you for your comment. Do you want to tackle that one, James? We know that um, costs of health care continue to rise. Even people enrolled through uh, um, the health exchanges, they see their premiums going up. I mean, what's the solution? So uh, I know that Rosemary is still on, and she is by far the expert uh, from a historical basis. She's probably better off to answer that question. All right, Rosemary, can you take it? Happy to. Um, I think, you know, an important hallmark of the exchanges is that essentially it was acknowledging we do, we already have a privatized system. Um, we The exchanges use private health insurers, name brand ones um, that, that you're familiar with, and the the um, you know the providers are also you know privatized. We are not um, essentially a government-run system in this aspect. Um, it was the exchanges themselves created a you know a website which was often run by private vendors, overseen by a government entity such as Gems. But but the but it was bringing together almost like a you know an Amazon kind of marketplace or Travelocity that allows for the private market to sell insurance. Granted, there was a government subsidy, but the real face of it is very much a private system. So in terms of controlling costs, that has been an age-old question um, because a lot of folks think, hey, supply and demand, it's going to work out. We'll we'll lower costs um, or they'll 
you know, that, that, that somehow that should, should work out. And it turns out it is more complicated than that, um, you know, with the system that we have. Um, and so that, that leads, you know, some countries turn to having government play a much stronger role and, in fact, set prices rather than letting the private market set them. Um, that's a really big, hard philosophical question, and people seriously disagree on that. But we do actually have a fairly privatized system in this country. Chris from Durham is calling. Chris, you're on the show. You know, the real issue I think that no one's talking about is the cost for medical treatment in the country and in our state. Um, you go to the emergency room, you get admitted, you get an Advil, you, you have a bill for $700 uh, for that Advil that you can pick up on, on any CVS pharmacy for about $0.18 cents a piece. Until these costs are addressed, I think our health insurance is going to continue to rise on an annual basis. Um, and it's going to continue to multiply whether or not the government gets involved. And this seems to be something that I think the regulators and our, our state needs to get involved with to kind of curb some of those costs with privatized health care. All right, Chris, thank you for your call. You know, I'll, I'll pose that, you know, a question to Harriet because you cover uh, the insurance industry. You know, I understand that prescription drug prices continue to grow. I mean, what are you hearing from the, the insurance side of things on how they can make it more affordable for their consumers? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, of course cost of in, not just insurance but the cost of medical care is is you know the big elephant in the room i guess um and you know but obamacare has taken a lot of heat for um the rising cost of health insurance on the exchanges we've seen an average rise of i think it's 24% um on on the Connecticut exchange for 2017 but it's been pointed out many times this is not necessarily uh, a, you know a only due to the exchanges themselves is actually across the board medical costs keep rising and this is something that you know the, the law itself has failed so far to contain and it will be an, another problem for president-elect trump he's talked about um allowing drugs in from overseas having less regulation around um uh, pharmaceuticals so, so that would be an interesting um to see how the industry reacts to that um but of course it's a multifaceted problem now, I mentioned James Wadley's here, CEO of Access Health CT. Um, you said that you're getting typical enrollment for this time of year. Um, so what, what, when people who are listening who have yet to, to enroll, what, are you, what do you want to tell them? So uh, first and foremost, it, it's, uh, it's real easy to engage with Access Health. You can uh, call our call center. You can go on to our website. You can, if you're looking for more in-person assistance, you can walk into our storefronts in New Haven or New Britain. You can reach out uh, on our website and, and get a list of certified application counselors uh, that can help you in your individual communities. There's a myriad of opportunities for, uh, for customers to find help uh, if they need it to, to enroll. And, and we really want them to feel comfortable uh, through this process because it, it's a complicated process. I want to take another call. Wilma from Berlin. Wilma, you're on the show. Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. I would like to just speak to uh, the young man, the young uninsured man who made the comment about not being able to afford um, health insurance. Um, excuse me for stuttering. I take a lot of drugs. I am now a senior citizen, and I have Medicare and um, Social Security. About 10 years ago, I lost my speech one day. I ended up having brain surgery. I spent 10 days in intensive care unit because they could not control, they could not stop the seizures 
in my brains, in my brain, I only have one, <laughs> um, do not, do not go without health insurance. Sometimes young people think they're invincible. Sometimes young people will put a gym membership ahead of looking for someone to insure them. Um, don't, don't go without health insurance. We would have lost our home. We would have not been able to survive sincerely if we did not have health coverage and the hundreds of thousands of dollars. My hospital stay and my uh, drugs that I continue to take. Uh, it just, I, I hope, I hope my message is mm. is coming across. Yeah, I think um, I think we get your point, Wilma, and we're and we're happy to hear that you know you are, are advocating for all for all of us that we should uh, be insured. So thank you so much from uh, Rose uh, Wilma from uh, Berlin. But I wanted to turn back to to Rosemarie Day again, the healthcare consultant, president of Day Health Strategies. We just have a few more minutes, uh, Rosemarie. So uh, we don't just want to focus on the fact that there's a new administration, but we have a GOP controlled Congress. What likely could happen in the next year in terms of you know rolling back some of those provisions? the avenues to do that, Rosemary? Well, you know, many of, of those members of Congress have also campaigned on repealing Obamacare. Um, and so, you know, they've been they've been waiting for this day. And so uh, what's interesting is that now it's, the, you know, the responsibility is fully in their hands. Um, so, um, you know, when they, I think some members of Congress, when they would put forward something about repeal, um, they knew it would be vetoed by the, the uh, current president, President Obama. And, you know, now, now there won't be that backstop. So, you know, it's, it's possible that you'll see some um, temper their votes. On the other hand, um, you know, others are, are going to be, I think, even, even more vociferous. So we're going to have to see how that balances out amongst you know, the Republicans. They're not going to have universal agreement on how to proceed. And I think that's kind of the interesting point here is that when, um, when we talk about about repeal and replace, as, as the president-elect does, he's going to need Congress to actually move the legislation forward. And, you know, our separate branches of government often behave very separately, even even if they're under one party. Uh, so it could take time for them to hash out what they really want to do. And as long as the filibuster provision stands in the Senate, um, they'll actually need 60 votes in order to um, be able to move something forward. And that's going to be much harder to do because they only have a, a two-person majority um, in terms of a number of Republicans in the Senate. So um, so there's this over, sense of something happening overnight doesn't seem as likely at all, just given the way the wheels of Congress do tend to turn. Lucy, I was curious to ask Jim a question. Um, Jim, one of the biggest issues you've had this year is trying to keep insurers within the exchange. You've gone from four insurers to two insurers with different issues. I'm curious next year, you know, if you see this system no longer being supported by the federal government, do you think insurers will continue to step back? So that's one of the big questions that everyone is looking at right now, Harriet. And uh, we're really not sure what what to expect uh, for next year. What we can say right now is ultimately we have two carriers, Anthem and Connecticut, that are committed to the state of Connecticut. 
Uh, Connecticut is rolling out some new uh, business business models that uh, that they have just announced, and, and and so we feel that they are going to going to stay committed. But ultimately, uh, uh, as Rosemary says, Congress will have the, have have that last word. We also heard earlier um, Harry Jones saying that insurance companies are contractually locked in till for at least 2017. So. Um, getting the word out that people need to enroll before the deadline, which is end of January. Is that right? It is. It's uh, you, uh, Lucy, you touch on a, bu- a few things, right? So I have had conversations with our insurance commissioner and uh, c- carriers are locked into this, into Connecticut through the end of uh, 2017. So uh, our customers are, are, are protected that way. That's one of the benefits that Connecticut has with uh, the legislation that they've created in Connecticut. Uh, so they are covered. They will, they will stay covered uh, throughout the year. And, um, and, and, on, on, on the next note, we're already working on 2018. So the federal government has passed along all the rules that we are looking for for 2018. So we continue to move forward and, and work with the community uh, on how we can improve the plans that we have. And there's lots of recommendations, and, and, and we'll continue to do that. I want to take one more call. Jason from Avon, we have like a less than a minute, Jason, if you could be quick. Hey, Lucy. Look, I, I came from Australia 10 years ago. And uh, the healthcare system here just staggers me. I mean, we pay far more here than we ever paid in Australia for anything. Um, you know, it's a partly socialised medical system in Australia. But I think I think that this country needs to take a good hard look at why is it that other countries can simply provide healthcare far cheaper than what we can provide here. Well, that's a good point to end on, Jason. I think uh, everyone in the room would agree. (laughs) So thank you so much for your call. I want to thank Rosemary Day. She's president of Day Health Strategies, a healthcare consultant. Thank you for your your expert opinion this hour, Rosemary. Thanks. I would love to throw in one last thing. Go ahead. I have a favorite um, quote from Winston Churchill, if folks may be familiar with it. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. (laughs) And I have to say, I think we may find with Obamacare... Folks will say, well, it was the worst form of health reform, except for all the others. Mm. Thank you so much, Rosemary. We'll have to see if bipartisanship uh, would ring true in this upcoming (laughs) year. We'll see. Also, WNPR's business reporter, Harriet Jones. And thank you so much, James Wadley, for coming in, CEO of Access Health CT. We'll continue to have this conversation, I'm sure, in the next uh, year. And we thank you for your calls, your comments, your tweets. You can continue the conversation at uh, where we live at WNPR.org. And I want to thank you for listening. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.